Welcome to the Expat Cast. This is a podcast where expats share their stories about fitting in, standing out, and every mishap on the journey to finding home abroad. I'm your host, Nicole. This is actually not an episode of the Expat Cast, rather, it's bonus content from an event that recently took place in Freiburg. Or actually, it took place online, but it was hosted by the Carl Schutz House here in Freiburg, which is our local German American Cultural Center. Shortly after the George Floyd protests began in the States, and in fact, actually worldwide, the Carl Schutz House put together this event called America on Fire. They invited five Americans living in Freiburg to come on and talk about their experiences of race in America. Four of those panelists are Black Americans living in Germany, and then one is a white American living in Germany. And it was moderated by me, also a white American living in Germany. I'm so grateful to the Carl Schutz House for putting it together. I'm personally grateful and honored that they asked me to moderate it, but most importantly, I'm extremely thankful to the panelists for agreeing to do this. The hundred attendees that were there got to learn so much from these people. In fact, because of the coronavirus, this event was hosted online via Zoom, and this was actually the largest number of attendees that they've ever had. They had around 150 people try to participate in the event, but it was capped at 100, which tells you something about the level of interest around this topic. And I think there were just so many of us desperate for community, desperate for some direction that we could take to, to be proactive, even if proactivity meant listening. It actually ended up being wonderful that this event was hosted online because not only could more people attend from not just all over Germany, but beyond, this event was also then able to be recorded. So the video version is available on Facebook, and I will link to that in the show notes. What I'm bringing you today is the audio version. I will say that because we are doing this in Germany, we had a lot of internet issues because anyone who lives in Germany knows the internet connection here is not great. It's really not great. So in the moment, we just pushed through, but you'll definitely hear in the audio version, there were times where the communication was a little bit difficult. That said, overall, you can definitely still understand the gist of what is being said. I've also linked in the show notes to the various resources and pieces of content that were mentioned in the panel. And finally, if you're interested in more of this type of content, go to the Carl Schutz House website. Again, I've linked to that in the show notes. We are planning a second event, which will also take place over Zoom, which means that you can participate from anywhere, though you do need to register. So if you are interested, make sure you get on it pretty quickly, because as said last time, they actually had to turn people away because there was so much interest. I don't, at the time of this recording, have an exact date for you as to when the second event is going to be, but it's going to be in the next week or two. So as I said, the best place to go for the most up-to-date information is the Carl Schutzhaus website. They have it available in English and in German. So either way, you should be able to find part two of America on Fire. But for now, it's part one, America on Fire, brought to you by the Carl Schutzhaus. Thank you to everyone who's here. It's, it's wonderful that so many people were interested in attending. Thank you most of all to the panelists. You didn't have to do this, but you are, and all of us really appreciate that. I'm going to jump right to it. There's a lot to discuss. 
So in order to get right to it, I'm going to go ahead and introduce you all to our different panelists, along with asking them the first question. So Esther, a little bit about Esther. She is from Indianapolis. She's a licensed lawyer in North Carolina, and she's a descendant of slaves and sharecroppers in Mississippi, where her parents were born. She has been in Germany since 2014, 2015, um, and she teaches about criminal law and culture, as well as she's finishing up her doctorate at the Max Planck Institute of Crime, Law, and Security. She also is a mother of a very wonderful teenage daughter, who some of you might know from her work in the Carl Schutzhaus Library. With that, Esther, I want to give you the floor. How are you? And how do you feel about being on this panel? Uh, thank you for having me uh, as a part of this panel. Um, it's definitely a, an interesting time. It is, it, it's overwhelming at times to, to think about and to uh, listen to, to the news. Um, but I, I'm very uh, excited to be on the panel to at least talk about it. I think that one of my major frustrations with the way that um, the conversation has happened so far with a number of people is that there's just so much information. It's almost information overload at times because now um, versus, for example, my first experience with uh, police brutality was the Rodney King um, incident and then the the protests and the riots that happened after that and during that time the first thing that I saw or I, I, I noticed was the, just the quality of the video and how uh, unclear things were. Now you have almost everyone with video recording capabilities that is recycled over and over. So it's almost a sense of a recurring cycle of trauma. Um, if these are Im in, uh, images that you're used to seeing, um, not just from Rodney King, but if you have a connection to um, the civil rights movement. And as um, Nicole mentioned, my parents are from Mississippi. They grew up, um, at least my mom grew up in Jim Crow South. My father grew up in Indianapolis. He moved after he um, was born. Uh, with my grandmother, um, but I, I did grow up seeing a lot of these protests, uh, a lot of images of uh, violence between police and protesters and, or violence um, from protesters or people that disagreed with police action or uh, authority. So this is a very interesting time and I'm just happy that there's at least some kind of structured outlet to discuss this um, with community and with others who may be experiencing something similar or even have some new perspectives. So thank you. All right, next up, uh, Jarrell. Jarrell is from New England. He is the son of uh, two police officers. He's half black, half Puerto Rican, and um, he has a, he's working on his master's in immunology and he also has his own brewing company. He's been in Germany since 2009 and he's the dad to a very lovely nine-year-old girl. Terrell, same question to you. How are you? And how do you feel about being on this panel? Uh, I'm not doing so great, to be honest. Um, but I'm really happy to be on this panel so that I'm able to finally vent some of my frustrations and maybe 
uh, be able to make sense of this or at least a little bit more sense of this as to what needs to happen next, what part I can play from over here. And yeah, that's basically how I feel. Just really frustrated and thankful that this opportunity has arisen. Next up, Patrick. Patrick is from New York, Long Island specifically. His parents are from Haiti and Patrick is an engineer and an entrepreneur. He's been in Germany since 2011. Patrick, how are you? Uh, hi, hi. Um, I'm doing okay. Um, uh, just a little bit uh, numb and tired of uh, seeing these kinds of uh, situations um, consistently come up and, and not seeing any real resolution to this kind of problem. And uh, But I, I do feel hopeful that uh, through discussion with you guys, I can start to feel a little bit more like myself <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah I'm looking forward to listening and uh, and talking to you guys about the situation yeah. you're up next Jason is from Southern California and he's been in Germany since 2003 he's a lecturer at the university here in town Jason how are you feeling and how are you feeling specifically about being on this panel well, I mean, in general, I'm doing fine. Um, I think I've probably had a much different experience than the other people on the panel, and that's one of the reasons I'm mostly here to listen tonight. I often teach the students at the university that the way to learn more is actually to hear what other people have to say instead of just waiting to say what you have to say. So I am grateful for being here. I maybe have some statistics and some things that have occurred in the last week or two that I would like to mention, but I really am here mostly to listen to hear what my colleagues have to say, because this is a time where their voices do need to be heard more than mine. So I'm, thank you for inviting me, and I look forward to hearing uh, what my fellow panelists have to say. All right, Reggie. Reggie, if it's okay with you, I wanna just read directly from what you shared with us in the emails in preparation for today. Can you just give me a quick nod if that's okay? Okay. Reggie son, who I am does not seem to matter at this moment. I honestly don't care to share any of my background information. It's irrelevant. I could be anybody from anywhere. I am a human being first and foremost. I respect people. I value life. I am a pacifist. If that's not clear by now, there's nothing more to say. Reggie, how are you? And how do you feel about being on this panel? Um, well, I initially did not want to join the panel, um, but you know, I came to uh, I came to the realization that perhaps it was definitely important to to speak up and say something. Um, thanks to my partner. And um, it's very, very difficult to articulate and put into words uh, the frustrations that you feel because you've been down this road many times. You've seen this movie over and over again. We know how it begins. We know the middle of the film. We know the end. And um, after seeing it so many times, it's like, okay, well, what else is there to discuss? You know, if you, if, if real change cannot start with all of us, um, 
starting with, with who we are and how we decide to uh, lead our lives, then we perhaps are having very different discussions. And so um, I am grateful to, to be a part of this. And uh, it was definitely important for me to learn more about uh, my fellow panelists. And uh, thank you, Nicole and uh, Sabina and the whole Call Shorts House uh, staff for just reaching out and just making sure that I was okay. That really meant a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you guys all. Um, Jarrell and Patrick, in the emails preparing for this, you both shared that you've had encounters with the police that you've categorized as minor. Um, they end up with you driving a impact. So can you tell us about that? And let's start with, um, let's start with Jarrell. Yeah. Uh, so in my life, I've only really had one interaction with the police besides them always being at my home because my mother is a police officer and father. Um, I was driving home from the university and I was stopped by a police officer at night because my headlight was flickering. He walked up to my car and he, before he, talked, before he started talking to me, started shining his light into the back of my car, analyzing what was going on in the car. And then he said, um, license and registration, please. And while I was reaching for it, he said, oh, those tints look kind of dark. Uh, you know, have you, have you had them measured? And then he looked at my license, saw my last name, and he said, have a nice night, and he just walked away. And that was the end of the stop. Um, so I think the power of my mother's name has really sort of shielded me from the things that uh, happened in other environments. But for me, the long lasting um, impression from this is that my mother had to have the conversation with me when I was a teenager that, you have to use my name whenever the police stop you um, or it can get dangerous. And for me, that was just normal. And then I started to realize that's not normal. That shouldn't be something that we accept in our society, that black people have to have this conversation with their children. Yeah, so that's my experience with the police. Yeah, um, yeah. mine's uh, uh, the most recent one was uh, last year when I went to visit my folks in Long Island and uh, and I think my father was driving me back from the, uh, the DMV, you know, just going through Amityville, which is just on Sunrise Highway. And um, uh, I, yeah, my, my dad, um, he has a Acura with tinted windows. It's an old car, but, you know, nice enough for him. Uh, so he, was, he drives quite slowly. He's a defensive driver. So it was a shock to us when uh, the police car um, came behind us and then sirens blazing and then we had to pull o over and then and then the police officer came over and um, um, mentioned to my father as he um, spoke to him that uh, I think one of your lights uh, is broken, right? And my father was, wasn't really clear about it and he didn't think any of his lights were broken, but you know, I noticed, and so did my father later on, he told me, he noticed that the officer looked um, at the back of the, the car because yeah, to see if there was anybody or anything um, in the back seat um, because the windows were tinted. And, and then, you know, after that, he went to check my father's registration and he didn't see anything wrong with the registration and he didn't give a summons for the light uh, and he just let us go on our way. Um, it didn't really, you know, I think since that, I've lived in Germany since 2011 and I've had lots of interactions with the police in Germany. 
but it's very different. It's a different feeling because you don't feel uh, like your life could be threatened by a German police officer. Um, you know, they profile you because you're a foreigner or you're a minority, but it's, it's only because they, they want to make sure that, you know, you belong in the country. That's it. <laughs> um, but with uh, that particular interaction, um, you know, I, I felt like I was in another planet because I was kind of like, oh, okay, it's just the cops checking on us. <laughs> but my dad was really upset because he was like, I did nothing wrong. Why did they stop? And, uh, and that's when I realized that probably, you know, I've, I've been living in Europe for a, maybe too long, <laughs> you know. And, uh, but that was the, the inter interaction I had. And it, it bothered my father more than it bothered me. And, uh, and only recently did I start thinking, thinking about it. Yeah. That's it. Do any of the other panelists have response or um, maybe a story of their own that they would like to share? Uh, yes, I would like to jump in. That's okay. Um, well, I can say that how you deal with the police is something that you learn uh, how to do from a young age. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I was walking down the street. It was late at night. It might have been about eight or nine o'clock. I was living in the uh, Germantown district of Philadelphia. And uh, a cop just pulled up, just wanted to know who I was. You know, I'm, I'm 13 years old. I, I don't, what kind of ID should I carry on me, you know? And uh, next thing I know, I'm just sitting in the back of uh, the, the police car and he's asking me my you know, questions, where do I live and so forth. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. So this is how it works. And uh, my friends used to, you know, get stopped by the cops when we were just kids, you know. I'll, I'll never forget seeing uh, one of my classmates named Marcel. I still remember him being assaulted by a police officer who was um, on a horse in front of the public library in Germantown. And um, there's a little gateway that was there and uh, you have to leave the little gate area in order to exit the library completely. And so my friend Marcel had nowhere to go. You know, he's a 13 year old kid and uh, he's looking up at this horse and this, this cop is just there. He's blocking his path. And uh, he could have been injured by that horse. If the horse was, uh, if, he, uh, if the horse had gotten frightened, you know, he could have, you know, struck out at Marcel and, and really, really hurt him. But uh, my most vivid uh, memory of the police is when I was in upstate New York and I was in Buffalo. Uh, me and a couple of my fraternity brothers were in the car and we should have probably known better because I learned in college that generally you try not to roll in groups you know, with other black men, because you will be stopped by the police without question. You can be a college kid. They don't care. They don't know. But anyway, uh, at this particular time, uh, rather than just sort of, you know, pull us over and talk to us, deal with the issue and see what was going on, the police actually had us follow them. So they were like, yo, follow us. And we were like, okay, well, perhaps we're going to go down to the station, you know, and I was with my frat brothers, uh, Tony and Dwight. And um, it was cold, you know, Buffalo, New York. And instead of uh, going to the police station, I noticed that we turned down an alley. And I was like, yo, this, uh, where's the police station at? I don't see a police station around here. And then 
that's when everything started. Um, you know, the cops, they come over and then they want to check our registration. And um, I remember just trying to uh, um, unfasten my seatbelt, which is something you got to be very careful about if you're stopped by the cops. But uh, my chair, my seat was, was also like in the way uh, because it was a really, really tiny car. And I made the mistake of reaching under the passenger seat. And that's when they drew the gun. And, um, you know, it, it, it was going to get, it could have gone down pretty, pretty badly. And the only thing that actually stopped this from getting worse, and I'll never forget this, was that a police officer, a black police officer pulled up. He rolled down his window. He looked at me, my friends, and his two fellow white officers. And he just gave them a look like, And immediately they released us. And that's how we knew the whole situation was foul. And we have no idea. I mean, in my mind, I'm just preparing myself. Wow, they might work us over. I have no idea. But uh, I'm very, very grateful for that, uh, the police officer that showed up. And uh, just to check on things to make sure that these cops were not going to harm children. And so uh, I'm very grateful for, for that. That's it, you know, thank you very much for uh, for listening. Thank you. As a as a black woman, I, I, I always find it very interesting with the uh, with uh, the topic and of the police and interaction, because my experience with police has, um, I mean, I've had the the experience of being pulled over. Um, because I, I, I grew up and my mother still lives in a low income neighborhood in Indianapolis, very segregated, uh, predominantly black, other than now it's, it's changing a bit. Um, but m my experience with police is, is also in uh, a sense of not feeling protected at all um, and not necessarily targeted. I had an experience when I was um, younger uh, in my early 20s going to, it was, I think it was the Kentucky Derby. And I was with my friends and these events, they, you have the horse race and then you have the other part where you just have a bunch of people getting together, parties and, and different things like that. It really is two different worlds, the Kentucky Derby horse race and, and the, the other events. And something really traumatic happened at that event to me. I was, I was attacked and there were police all along the row of that um, particular event. And me and my friends went to the police and said we were, I was attacked back there. These guys um, assaulted me and, you know, can you help us? And they just looked at me. They just did nothing. They, they looked at like, I'm sorry. And that's when I, and I, I had to be about 21, 22. And that's when I first felt like that I was not deserving of whatever protection that they were providing. I don't know if it was because of the event. I don't know if that it was because they didn't believe me, but that was, that was the first instance where I really knew I could not depend on police for protection. The second incident was I had my ID stolen when my daughter was about three and I was in school. 
and a detective was assigned to to my case and he did nothing i mean this person was going to other states stealing cars going getting arrested and this police officer detective was getting ready to retire and i think because he thought he was retiring there was not a lot he was willing to do the only reason I was able to get something done with my cases because I had a friend whose mother was a police officer. She was actually a detective and she helped me. So I've always had this experience with the police where if, if I know an officer, then I feel protected by that officer, not by the institution of police, which is very difficult being a lawyer um, and then also working in public service. but that relationship between protecting and, um, and, and calling the police when you need something, I just, I've never had that experience. Thank you for listening. There's actually a, a quote that I jotted down, I think I wanna throw in right here. Um, there, um, there's a podcast called Fresh Air, it's also a radio program, and uh, there was an interview recently with Eric Adams, um, who said, um, when you have a relationship with an entity in your community that is only built on when there is something terribly wrong, you begin to associate pain with the profession. To invite them to a party, you call them when someone shot up the party. Um, Eric Adams is, um, he's black and lives in New York. Um, he had, uh, bad experiences with the cops growing up, but then he became a cop himself and an officer, um, and he's now the, um, the president, I believe, of, of the borough of Brooklyn. And I think that quote speaks to, to what you just shared. Um, these shared are your personal experiences, and they're emblematic of the systemic racism that's rampant in America. The murder of Ahmad Aubrey by a white civilian Americans, the fatal shooting of Brianna Taylor by the Louisville Police Department, the racial profiling of Christian Cooper by a white civilian American, and the murder of George Floyd by a white Minneapolis police officer. These are all symptomatic of systemic racism. How does systemic racism manifest itself in American society? And to kick us off, I'll send it right back to, uh, to you, Esther, if that's all right. Yeah, definitely. Um, so this is a topic that I, I talk a lot about in my um, classes and in my research and studying of criminal law in the US. Um, one of the things a lot of people don't understand about the US and how race was developed, it was developed in the law. So you had law that determined whether you were black or white. Uh, one of the first examples is, that I use is the black codes, the codes that were passed in the uh, post-Confederate South uh, to, I guess, regulate the way society was to be structured after slavery. And so in this law, if you were a person of color, and they use that language in the law, if you were a person of color, for a person of color too, um, for example, ravish a white woman. These are actual terms that were used 
in the statute, in the legal authority to construct society and to develop norms. So when you have a society that is based on law that determines who is deserving of protection more so than others or who is regulated differently than others, in a sense, divided, that is where that society starts to build upon. And keep in mind who enforces the law. It's police officers, it's law enforcement. I mean, you can even go uh, further back. Uh, there are um, officers and, and enforcement of, of slavery and people who are trying to make sure uh, order is kept in these systems. And so one of the things to realize is the U.S. is not that old. Jim Crow is not that old. My mother grew up in Jim Crow. So we're talking um, in the 60s, 70s, or 60s, 40s, 50s. Um, more recent than we'd like to admit. And so this is how the system is built. That's why it's systemic, because the system has a, a core or a foundation of, of race and division. And that was to maintain power. And those systems are not dismantled easily. Again, um, look at uh, segregation. If you go to certain cities, uh, a lot of times when visitors come to the US, it's very rarely that they go to a community that is predominantly black, because a lot of times that is seen as a poor community or a dangerous community. And those things were designed. You had redlining where you had uh, laws and contracts that were uh, designed to keep black people from living in certain areas and putting them in poorer areas. And so when you have a system of laws tools, legal resources that divide and, and stratify or put people on different levels, you, it's so difficult to dismantle that. And so that is why what we're seeing is, is the continuous effects of that. This is nothing new, it's just the continuous effects. Because if you're just now noticing that the police have been brutal, then you definitely haven't had a lot of experience looking at black communities and really understanding what they are. Um, and, and I think that is something that has to be better shown as it relates to how this problem is solved. It, something has to be dismantled. Patrick, um, I wonder if you could speak on, um, on this topic, especially regarding entrepreneurship and advancing in your career. Oh, yes, yes. I brought that up because I, I realized that this uh, idea of systemic racism um, yes, is, is, is encoded in, in the law in a way from throughout the history of the U.S. But then, you know, it seeps into, you know, the general corporate culture of the U.S. too. And trying to find opportunities to succeed if you're a person that is somehow able to um, fit in, quote unquote. Um, and I can speak to my own privilege. I don't know the others. Skin color does play a role in that, uh, um, being high yellow as I am. Um, I have more privilege than someone who is darker. Uh, uh, and I, I think it's, it's kind of horrible, but it's part of the game that we all kind of pretend to play. And um, that privilege has allowed me to work in the corporate world. But then um, to advance in the corporate world, you also have to have mentors who see you as being worth um, um, promoting and so on and so forth. But uh, um, if it wasn't for affirmative action, um, probably most corporate companies wouldn't even think about why they choose a certain candidate over another, right? And and recently, um, I believe the Supreme Court has 
has ruled against the 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 the, the laws that um, protect affirmative action. So so these protections that you know we were looking forward to using to to be able to just get a foot in the door are, are being taken away slowly based on this idea of reverse discrimination, right? Um, whereas the idea of affirmative action was just to 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 just try to make the playing field a little bit more equal for those who 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 can find their way to the to to that level of 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 maybe improving their lives through entering into this uh, um, corporate world that uh, that is so loved by uh, our dear president Donald Trump and so on and and his cronies and so on. So so that's that's something I guess other panelists can speak to more than me. But that's that's what something that I noticed. Do you guys notice that too? That that uh, the systemic racism is also it plays into all parts of life. I can, oh, go ahead, Esther. Yeah. Oh, I just really quickly. Actually, you bring up an excellent point. The Girl Schultz House just had a uh, photo exhibit um, regarding this topic as far as Black women in corporate America. And um, one thing that is is a a sign of how this has happened is if you look from uh, probably about the early 2000s, you had many more Black CEOs. I think at one point the highest number was nine, and you had men and women, and now there are only four Black CEOs, um, and they're all men. And, um, and, 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 and this is for Fortune 500 companies. So you can even see the effects in the upper ranks of leadership when it, uh, as it relates to opportunities in corporate America. And um, a Carl Schutzhaus employee just also wanted to throw in there that that uh, exhibit is actually still up. Um, so you can still go and check it out, yeah. Go ahead, Jason. I just wanted to make a point about the earlier discussion when they were um, the other panels were discussing experiences with the police that they had. Um, I've not had such an experience, but I can tell you I grew up in the fourth safest town in the United States next to the second safest town in the United States, and I was afraid of the police. So just for the people watching right now, imagine growing up in such a safe area, and I'm afraid of the police. I sort of wanted to add on to, to Esther's point. I noticed she, she mentioned a lot of things about the Jim Crow laws, redlining, and uh, yeah, or structural racism in general. And I think that action against that starts in school system. I think that the history class in the U.S. is basically a big propaganda machine that doesn't really, doesn't really analyze the history of the country and always paints it in the best light. And I think that it really starts there to inform people that this stuff happened and that it's okay. You can still think America is great now, that's great, but you have to come to terms with the fact that these horrible things happened and we have a debt to pay to certain members of our society. Yes, excellent point. I just wanted to add on that um, these laws are still available on the internet. And another thing that um, a lot of people don't understand about U.S. Um, police and law enforcement, it's very state-based. So we have federal laws, but a lot of 
laws, especially criminal laws, happen on the state level. So a lot of change is really understanding what a state or a local police force has as their policy and what their laws are. And one would probably be surprised to look at the current, current criminal codes and compare them to what has happened in the past and see that a lot of them don't really change as much. Um, and so you might have a, a lot of change statues, but you have some statues that have a very discriminatory effect and, and they just haven't changed. So uh, I think that's a great point. Uh, if you can't, um, if you can't learn about it in, in school, there is definitely take the, the initiative to, to learn more about state-based codes. If you're not familiar with the U.S., pick your favorite location where Disney World is, look at Florida's laws. Um, but you got to start understanding where these particular policies and laws are built. And it's not always at um, the, the national level. So, I mean, you can also see it uh, with the NFL, for example, um, this quarterback, Colin Kaepernick, taking a knee four years ago um, to bring up the topic of police brutality. And he was essentially blackballed from the game as one of the top players simply because of him trying to express his views peacefully. And so it shows you really how even today a lot of let's say white America isn't even really ready for this conversation because they're saying, oh, well, if you guys protested peacefully, then, you know, it'd be a lot easier to listen. And you think about the last few years when Colin Kaepernick essentially um, gave up his career to stand up for what was right. And how has he been rewarded? You know, I mean, so that was my point. I think that transitions us nicely to the next topic where there's a lot to, to dive into here. Um, and that is this theme that I picked up on in preparing for this panel of action versus inaction. I think we're seeing that play out right now in a lot of individual decisions and a lot of community level decisions and a lot of governmental level decisions. And again, like Esther is right to point out, government and, and institutions are both state and national, local, state and national. So there's many levels to that as well. Also globally, the theme of action and inaction is relevant because there's been lockdowns pandemic that are now being loosened. So this is really dictating a lot of, or it had, has, had been dictating a lot of what people were able to do. So with the protests happening, events really, um, and with, with um, restrictions being loosened, again, activity is coming back into play. COVID-19, um, which it bears mentioning, is hitting the Black community far harder than other communities in the U.S. And to make matters worse, all four of the cases that I mentioned happened over this time of global pandemic. Those are very recent instances. So the most visible form of recent action has been these protests, um, which have now taken place in all 50 states. There has been violence. What do you guys think about this form of action, namely the protests? And for that, we're going to start off with Reggie, if that's okay. Um, when you consider that people wake up every day 
and have a plan or not for their lives. Um, and they see, they see something, one thing that they know for sure that they count on is they were told and taught that our country offers freedom. So if you decide that you want to state uh, your feelings and you wanna stand up to your government and corruption through a protest, you should actually be allowed to do that. Um, but things of course can always turn a little, a little crazy. So for those people that still believe in protesting, uh, I would say, okay, please, you know, please do that. But we always see that everyone also might, there are others that might have a separate agenda and things can, you know, get out of hand. Uh, for the most part, it is beautiful when people come together to have a discussion and a conversation, uh, on both the state and national level about the changes that we can make, perhaps the system. Uh, the truth is how much power do people actually have in their communities? Um, if the police don't really know the people, how can they truly be there to help them and to protect them? Nobody knows your neighborhood uh, like, like you, like your family. I remember, uh, I remember uh, hip hop pioneer KRS-One said something to the effect of your grandmother can tell you more about, uh, about American history than any school because she's lived that. So, you know, my, my stance is a little bit differently. You know, I, I'm, I hope that people believe in that still. I hope that uh, protesting can still be a, a, a positive instrument. But as I've said in the past, from what I see, you know, I'm just shaking my head like, you know, we, we've seen this before. So um, yeah, that's, that's, that's really it. Um, I, I'm not really impressed by it. And, um, you know, I am hopeful that perhaps something constructive could come out of protests, but, you know, I don't know. I'm just, just kind of null and it's a void for me. I'm numb. Sorry. Jason, uh, you want to respond to that? I, I did because Reggie had written us earlier about it and he wondered about how effective it is to protest nowadays. And I think especially sitting here as an American, seeing what's happening at home, it, you can feel despair. But I gave some thought to what he said earlier today and I wrote down, um, you know, the original charges for the first officer who killed George Floyd were third degree murder. Those have been upgraded to second degree murder. And the other three officers who were not originally charged have been charged. And I feel like the protest helped make that happen. There was also a murder some uh, months ago, I believe in Tennessee, Brianna Taylor, Taylor, Tyler, um, a woman who had just come home, I think, uh, from working at the hospital. She was in her bed. The police broke in the wrong address and shot her eight times and killed her. And this had kind of been filtering away from the news. And I think it helped bring these other cases up along with the Amada Armory case. So I just, I want to feel like we still can affect change, even if it's not as fast or immediate or decisive as we'd like. So hopefully the next generation still thinks that protesting is a better way to do it um, than not finding a healthy outlet. So Brianna Taylor was in uh, Kentucky, in Louisville. 
Um, Esther, what would you like sorry, to say to that? I'm sorry to interrupt. I did want to say one more point about the protest that I do think is worth noting. Um, in the summer of 2014, another African-American, Michael Brown, was killed outside St. Louis, Missouri. And at that time, or a few months later, the public thought um, that about 40% perhaps thought it was a sign of a bigger problem in America, and about 60% thinking it was an isolated incident. And they were interviewing or polling people about the George Floyd murder, and 74% of Americans now said that they feel it's part of a bigger, broader problem. And so I do at least want to note that there appears to be some progress, at least in the thinking of the average American, even if we don't see it in laws or actual change. Okay, so um, Esther and then Jarrell. Um, yeah, I, I, I think protests are uh, extremely effective and I think they evolve and I think they come in many different forms. So the type of protests that we're seeing now with people marching through the streets, um, even the rioting um, is a form of protest. I mean, we think about the French Revolution and we think about violence. Um, there is a uh, really um, uh, a really interesting book I just recently heard about called This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed. And uh, it, violence has always been a part of uh, getting people's attention. But you also have other ways of getting people's attention. You had the boycotts where there was an economic restriction because people stopped buying stuff in, in protest. And so I think, you know, there are definitely uh, different ways to get people's attention. And I think that is what protest is meant to do. It's meant to disrupt. Um, some forms are more effective in getting people's attention than others. Uh, Jason mentioned Colin Kaepernick's. Uh, it was a peaceful protest, but he, he stood out because to, to kneel or to sit down is, is, is something that I, I, obviously it's not new because there were other people sitting before Colin or kneeling before Colin Kaepernick. Uh, Kaepernick uh, knelt, but it, it got people's uh, attention. And I think that's what protest is about. It's about getting people's attention. And, and sometimes it's, it's clean and it's organized and you sing Kumbaya together and you make a chain and sometimes it's messy and, and it's violent, but that's the purpose is to get people's attention. And some people are more effective in communicating one way and some people are more effective in communicating others. Yeah, when we were emailing for this, um, Esther, you shared a great quote from Martin Luther King. I'll share with, now, uh, with the group now. Riot, a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear? The plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last 12 or 15 years. You said that back in 1966, um, though it's, well. Um, Drell, I thought I saw you signal. Uh, yeah, there are a few things I wanted to, to respond to sort of just personally. Um, so first about the, the protest achieving the firing of the, the police officers or the charging of the police officers. Um, for me, that offers me almost no solace. What would offer me a little bit more solace is the firing of the police chief who felt that firing was an acceptable punishment for someone who just murdered somebody in camera. So that would be my, my next step of the protest. The second thing about protests is, um, yes, they're to get attention, but I think this is an issue that's already gotten attention. 
And I would like to see the protests uh, move into more of a disruptive phase to sort of take the narrative from the people who decide to disrupt via violence. So I would like to see things like boycotts. I was speaking to my cousin yesterday about um, an episode on the boondocks where the NBA players decided to no longer play in the NBA until, the, uh, until police brutality or legislation was, um, was enacted to protect black people. And so that's, that's my, my stance on protesting. I don't think marching in the streets is enough at this point. And I don't think charging those four officers, it didn't offer me any, any solace personally. I wonder if Esther, you could tell us a little bit about the legal aspect of um, the charges that were, well, the initial charge that was brought against the one officer and then the second charge that upped it to second degree murder and also arrest for the, um, the other officers. My understanding is um, that there's also a, a lot of nuance going on within the legal sphere. Um, you know, what, what, um, what charges signal to the public that you're doing something serious versus what charges you might actually get, um, you might win the case. I don't think that's the correct legal words, but um, yeah. No, no, winning the case is very important for a, for a legal matter. Um, so I'm not familiar with Minnesota law. As I mentioned, um, each state has its own criminal law. So you have some states that have first degree murder, second degree murder, third degree murder. And instead of third degree murder, you might have uh, manslaughter, negligent manslaughter, and, and, and similar charges. Um, it is the prosecutor that brings the charges. It is not the, the police that bring those charges. Um, and then also keep in mind, they are only charges. So when a charge is, is brought, it is the government's responsibility to prove every single element of that charge. So uh, for example, if you have first degree murder, um, murder with malice aforethought, there are certain guidelines in the law that a prosecutor has to prove, well, what is malice aforethought or what is an intentional killing? And so when you hear these charges, especially if it's from third to second, you think, oh, yay, this is, this is great. But the prosecutor still has to prove and make a case to meet whatever the law says uh, it must meet to meet second degree. Um, there's a difference in uh, jail time or the sentencing as it relates to those particular laws. And, uh, and even in that case, if the prosecutor does not uh, recommend a certain sentence according to what the law is, then that police officer can get charged and get a very low sentence. Um, so I think um, Jason mentioned this earlier, and, and I think Jarrell touched upon this, is there's always going to be a next stage to this. I mean, the protests are great. It gets people, people's attention. But uh, these, these, these charges and these announcements are really just the beginning because you have to, first of all, know what that means as far as what the government has to prove. And then there's still a lot of power with the prosecutor to basically give this guy a light sentence. I mean, going back to the Rodney King case, the reason the riots happened, it wasn't because those officers were charged. It's because they were acquitted. They, they got away scot-free, on-camera, VCR, four police officers beating a guy with batons, and they were found not guilty. So this is, I, I think, getting to Jarrell's point, 
you can have these charges. It could be great. But as soon as these officers go to court, that prosecutor has to prove it. Um, that case has to be efficient. And then we have to see what punishment is, is enough to really see if justice is served. Patrick, I'd like to throw it on over to you. Yeah, uh, that, that, that point about justice being served, uh, uh, I, I don't know uh, if that will be possible if um, he chooses for a jury trial, right? If he, if he gets a jury of his peers, um, the likelihood is actually 50-50 that he could um, walk um, possibly free on a mistrial, right? Um, even if with the video evidence. Uh, and once you go into trial, it could be quite difficult. Um, uh, if, you, if he has a good lawyer, which he probably will have, given that the police union is very powerful and can, can hire the best lawyer that money can buy. Um, so it, I think protests are necessary, but personally, I'm an introvert and I would be quite scared to be at a protest. So um, I would try to support through, through what Jarrell or Esther or uh, said uh, would be something like a, a boycott, um, you know, try to hit them economically to, to, to actually show the, the, the might of the black people in the country, which I think um, sometimes people forget that, you know, even though economically we've been held down, um, we still have power and we should show them that and, uh, and demonstrate it. And maybe people will start to listen and, and show some respect to um, this uh, very diverse group that we all call, you know, the, the, the black uh, community. You know, I think people forget that, too, that it's 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 a, a label that doesn't fit and uh, we need to get rid of it. But um, well, somehow you know, there's no way around the situation and we have to show them what we have power, even though, you know, there's no other. Yeah, I don't know what to say. I just I think we have to show them that we can we, we should be respected. Yeah. Jason, would you like to respond to that? Well, just these protests have been about police brutality. And I think for people who have not been at a protest and have seen on the news or on social media, it's clear that the police have acted brutally. So I do think in that respect, a lot of America who has stayed home and not gotten politically active on the streets for this is on their sofa, watching their regular TV show, on their smartphone, seeing videos of the police acting out of control, irresponsibly, essentially the nightmare of an American populace. So I do think people will not um, forget as easily what's happened here. While I was preparing for today, there was a Twitter thread of over 300 videos around the United States of the police acting, you know, basically starting the fight. And I think at other times it's been so localized or smaller, um, that it was a little bit easier to overlook, perhaps. And the fact that protests have been happening in really small towns that the other panelists and I have never even heard of these small towns, and yet they're having protests of like 15 teenagers. And that kind of action, I think, shows that it's gone beyond the people who are directly affected by it, because they see it's only a matter of time before the police see all of us like that. And it's good that people are speaking up even in their little towns and we're seeing the police overreact. And those videos are not gonna be easy for people to forget when they're deciding who to vote for or what kind of policing they want in their towns.
Well, that's something I want to actually ask then. Um, one of the things you mentioned is that these protests are about police brutality. Um, but I want to ask, are they? This is an element. Um, I've heard people argue, um, well, if you look at the examples that we listed, I listed before, the four examples that have um, the time during coronavirus, two of those cases were by civilians, not by cops. Um, so is it about just police brutality? Is it about just um, sort of this ambient concept of racism? Um, does coronavirus play a part in this? As I mentioned, it does disproportionately and has been disproportionately affecting and killing black people. Um, and it's it's not like they're not aware of that. They, they know that um, due to the larger institutional structures, they are at a higher risk, um, but they're still out there protesting. I don't want to keep throwing quotes at you, but there was another quote I read in the um, International New York Times State today saying, um, you know, basically the, the rage against American racism is strong enough to compel people to catching one disease being coronavirus in order to combat the other. Um, so is that is it, is, it, is it about that as well? Um, that's something I want to ask the group. Um, I, I'd like to say that I, I think it is, yeah, it's definitely about more than just police brutality. I think we're talking about the nature of policing and uh, this concept of racism, but not even just racism, but anti-blackness. And um, there's a good point about blackness being very broad, but it is something that is, is very pervasive, pervasive um, as I mentioned about the race and the statutes. Um, and, and then what this perception of, of who you are based upon your skin color. Um, the, the panel we have today is extremely diverse. We have some people who have heritage um, from, from different countries and different backgrounds, but in our interactions with the police, we're all seen as black. And I think that's the issue. Um, in my introduction, I mentioned that, you know, my parents are descendants of slaves and sharecroppers. One of the interesting experiences I have in Germany is most people think I'm Nigerian. And I get this question, well, where are your parents from? Where are your grandparents from? Where are their parents from? And it goes on and I have to say, you know, I think you gotta stop in slavery because that, that's how the system worked for me. Like, I, don't, I don't have any information past, I don't know, 1850 uh, or something as far as where I'm from. I'm American. And when I say I'm American, you just have to believe that because my skin is, you know, not the perception of what you see to be American, that doesn't mean I'm not American. I think the same thing happens here in Germany. I have friends who are German who are black like me and they're not seen as German. So I think when it comes to these issues, you know, you have race, but then you have, uh, you also have these kind of sub issues, anti-blackness, what, what is dangerous? As I mentioned, when it comes to black neighborhoods in the US and, and, and black stories and, and, and you know, this categorization, uh, categorization of black bodies, what is being seen? And, and this is something that is much easier, uh, much more difficult um, to say than um, racism. Um, there, it's much more complex than that. And it's much more difficult to discuss than just uh, police brutality because, you know, the police as an institution 
is, is has a lot of issues, but each police officer uh, may have some other different issues. And so we've got to break these things down and, and talk about them in, in bits and pieces. And some bits are going to be more difficult to swallow than, than others. Um, saying, you know, Black Lives Matter is much difficult, more difficult for some people than saying the police need to, you know, be better or stop being, uh, being violent. Um, so, yeah, that's my bit. I'd like to, to add to that. Um, Patrick said earlier that um, here in Germany, you, they're only just checking if you are in the country basically. And I thought that that was a very important quote, because I think that a lot of people think that comparing this profiling to the incidences in the U.S. is like comparing apples to oranges, when it's really like comparing rabbit turds to elephant turds. And you need to understand the connection between the two things and the role that everyone plays in sort of maintaining these systems. Um, I think only that way can people realize that can, can people really bring this issue to home and realize that the small actions that they take in their everyday life also play a role in that? Because I experience profiling in Germany on a daily basis and I'm sick of it, frankly. Well, let me um, then bring us to the next question, um, which is, yeah, bringing it to where we are today, right? So. Unfortunately, although we are a very diverse group, we're different ages from different states and we all moved to Germany at different times. One thing that we do all have in common is that we have experienced a very similar moment to this when we were living in the States as well as now. Um, my question for you now is how does it feel for you being an American who is living thousands of miles from where this is playing out at this moment? Um, and how does this compare to a time when you were in the States and you were experiencing it there. Um, and then the follow-up question to that, which is what and living abroad? I, I missed part of your second question. Um, what can we do as Americans living abroad in this particular moment? Um, I, can, I can say the uh, first thing you, we should all do is vote. Um, make sure you take uh, advantage of voting in the primaries, um, um, so that you can elect local officials as well that will represent your views. Uh, that's number one you can do that. And I did that today. Thank God I got it done before this event. And, uh, and, uh, and then, um, but uh, also, also you can take uh, time to, to talk to your family members um, in the U.S. to to connect with them and to see, you know, to give them some moral support because they, they have to live in the U.S. and we're privileged to live in, in, in Europe. So we don't have the same types of issues that, uh, and with the same, you know, it's annoying. I, I agree with Jarrell getting profiled all the time, but again, yeah, it, it, the, the, the weight of it is different. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, so it's good to, you know, connect with family and, and, and make sure that they're doing okay during this tough time. Uh, that's what I would say. Um, I'm sure others have other ideas. This is actually a question I would really love to hear from everyone on because after this, we're going to go to audience questions. So um, get prepared. I'm going to call you all out at some point one by one. Um, looks like Jason's ready to go next. Jason. Well, it's interesting about 
this idea of being profiled, as I'm sure it happens um, on levels even on a national, while living as an expat here in Germany, for example, I often have to teach in Zurich, which uh, I take a train to Basel and connect. And often around Basel, there are the Swiss border police and I don't carry my passport with me. I just don't like to have it with me. I have my California driver's license. And there have been at least a couple dozen times in the last 10 plus years, they come through with their big guns. They maybe ask, I say, oh, I just have my California driver's license. They look at it and they say, okay. And I could imagine some of the people on the panel also as Americans somehow getting a benefit that someone who looks like them from Algeria, as Esther said, might not get the same benefit of the doubt in that moment. And so we can kind of see it here in Germany on a national level rather than necessarily just the color of skin. I, one thing I hope we get a chance to talk about is there's going to come a point where people are going to say, fine, what do you want? And I hope that we have a list of, for example, policing changes that could occur. And I just wanted to mention a couple very, very briefly from a discussion I'd seen with a policeman online. The most important seemed to be that the policemen should live in the town that they police so that they go to the same bank, they go to the same supermarket, the same bar, that people know him or her and they can know the families that they deal with. Another, of course, being that body cams on the policemen should be there 24 seven. And as a rule, if you turn your body cam off on duty, you're fired. We need to kind of create new policies um, that make it clear that the police are there to serve us and not the other way around. Yeah, and I will mention that um, the, the group behind uh, Campaign Zero just came out a, a campaign called Eight Can't Wait, I believe it's called, um, where they lay out and you can actually go on their website and click specific cities and specific states. State is currently um, how many of these eight suggestions um, that state has process, and then they have a bunch of resources of what you can do to and, um, work towards those goals. Um, Drell, um, to go back to this question of being going through this in Germany abroad, um, what's your response to this? I, I didn't hear the question again, but I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> what can we do here? Um, one of the things I try to do is to inform people about the nuances of American racism, and I try to make them realize that it, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. Um, it's something that is foundational and structural in, in many things um, that can even be traced here. And um, so, for example, when people, when uh, something I, sort of got angry at when, when, when my daughter um, said is when there were two Africans talking and she said, oh, sie reden Afrikanisch. And then I was like, that's, that's not a language. And that's, that's actually, that's not something you would say about any other people. You wouldn't say sie reden Europäisch or sie reden Asiatisch or something like that. And so that's something that I try to do here. I think I understood the question. Now to, to you, Esther. Um. So I, it, it's a bit difficult for me because I am at the end of my um, PhD and I have to figure out what my next steps are. And I, I get this question a lot. Do you want to stay in Germany or do you want to go back to the U.S.? And it's, it's really difficult. It's been a great 
experience being here and um, experience the different culture, society, legal system, and so forth. Um, but one of the things that was really a big part of my life was community involvement. I mean, I've been volunteering for community organizations since I was 14. I worked for the Marion County Public Health Department for 10 plus years, and I really um, like in being involved in community. And even before um, I was <laughs> old enough to be involved, my mother has always been involved going to, uh, she has her own uh, ministry in the church where she counsels people who are addicted to drugs. And so I grew up watching her teaching people how to read, going back and forth to court with people that she barely knew. And, and um, it's, it's really one of the, the many reasons I decided to go to law school. And one of the things that I don't think a lot of people really see when they see these protests are seeing uh, the people who have access to the law, lawyers um, that are getting involved. When I was in law school, uh, Trayvon Martin was killed and uh, you had a lot of protests happening then. And a part of our law school was um, a, a public service uh, program where we as law students could help protesters and people who were getting arrested. Um, and, and I even see these in emails. Uh, for example, the uh, Black Attorney Association in North Carolina, they're sending out statements, but also these, we, we're as, we as attorneys are here to, to help you. And, and I think that's something that I miss here is this access to the law from a, a broader audience, especially from communities who are oppressed. I mean, one of the, uh, the benefits I see, even though the US legal education system is complex and expensive, is that you have people who have um, been oppressed by the laws who are now prosecutors and judges and, and attorneys who are working to try to at least dismantle the system in some sense, some in some sense supporting the, uh, the system. Um, and uh, it's always difficult for me to, to kind of be here and, and sit still and, and, and not want to jump back, jump, jump back in and, and, and get my hands dirty and, and help people. So um, I try to do what I can for here, for uh, here for the time that, that I have um, left. Um, and, and then also educating people on the difference and the nuances of the, the US system. Uh, but I, I think eventually I want to I want to return and I wanna I wanna get my hands back into it. I wanna be in part of those follow-up meetings, the going to the, the police budget meetings, going to the, the the city budget meetings, voting, talking to, you know, friends who are working in government, making uh, connections and different things like that, and just trying to see what can be done on the ground. Reggie. Um, well, I'm, I'm in touch with my brother back home pretty uh, on a regular basis. And uh, I, I agree. I think it's important to keep your family members posted and updated. Uh, they, they have no idea what you're going through. And um, I think if you if you have to if you move here and you have to, let's say, go to the Arbeit Samt or you have to go to any of the other um, the Ausland of Berhurta, it gives you definitely a new appreciation for what it must mean to to be an immigrant in a, in a new land. So I think it's important also to, to talk to your family members about the good fortunes that they do have to a certain extent of having been born in the United States. 
um, because a lot of people don't travel, you know, uh, and I have to admit that I remember my American passport coming in handy with me when me and a friend were in Italy. We were hanging out in Milan because we were in between trains. All right? We had to wait uh, for the following uh, train to come in the morning, like around 6, 6.30. And when the Italian police showed up, they thought, yo, where, where'd you come from? You know, did you just, you know, come from Africa or something like that? But once they saw that American passport, they really, really beat it. They, that was the fastest I've ever seen police, like actually heading in the other direction. And um, so you do have different kinds of experiences, you know, being here. Uh, I do wish more Americans would travel. Um, you learn something about yourself, about becoming a, a citizen uh, of the world. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that I've had the opportunity to actually uh, live in Germany. It's, uh, it's definitely been an eye-opening experience. My father was actually stationed here in Gießen in the, in the mid-80s, and he's the one who said, you know, you, you'll really find out about yourself and about what it means to be an American if you go abroad. Um, you'll, you'll see how people view you differently and what the old world actually represents. And I think sometimes as black Americans, we don't really know what it means to actually have a country to call our own. What I mean in terms of uh, language and uh, culture, if you say, okay, you're a black person, there's no, there's no place called black country. You know, you don't speak black, so to speak, you know, but, you know, if you're German, you do have a German language, you do have a German culture. And so, you know, I've always said that the, uh, that the black American is a European based uh, American invention to a certain extent. We have a lot, you know, to learn about ourselves and we should be respected as Americans. Uh, but I often get that question actually living here. People ask me, uh, why are you, why are you here? What are you doing here? Like the United States is the greatest country in the world. What did you, why'd you come here? You know, they don't believe me. They think maybe I've come here to, I don't know, rip the country off or something, but they're very curious though. Where'd you, you know, and as, as Esther pointed out earlier, like, you know, yeah, um, we just can't believe that really you come from the US. Really like, aren't you from Africa? Come on, tell the truth. Tell us where you're really from. And when you get those kinds of questions, you sometimes feel a bit offended, but you have to educate people. The best way of improving your position here and just making sure that you stay um, just connected to the people is through education. Your, your personal relationships are important. You know, the community that you have here. Um, I'm always told that I'm quite fortunate to be a part of a community. And I sometimes forget that because I don't really participate uh, in a lot of the extracurricular activities that happen. And I would definitely like that to change. I would definitely like to get to know my uh, my fellow Carl Schultz House panelists a little bit better. So that's definitely something that uh, I could do to also improve my my own standing here. Um, but that's been, that's been it. I'm, I've been in touch with my family back home. Um, my mother who goes to church often, she's lost members. Um, of, of her church from the coronavirus. And so, you know, she's kind of contacted me like once or twice a week now just to make sure that I'm okay. And so during these trying times, we definitely have to be in touch with, uh, with family, emailing and uh, just, just keeping an open heart. Um, but uh, th thank you very, very much, um, Cole. I hope I answered your question.
You did. Thank you. Yeah. Um, with that said, I well, I'm seeing your messages that you can't hear me. Um, so I'm I'm hoping that the questions will will get out. Um, the first question was for Esther. As a black woman, what do you think is not being talked about? What's missing from the conversation? Okay. Um, well, I think we covered a lot and there's there's so much that, that has to still be said. Um, I think by, I'm assuming by, by that question and asking as a black woman, um, you, you, you might be, thinking about uh, some of the Black women who have um, been um, also victims of uh, these acts. Um, I think that is also a big issue. Um, I think that when we do have uh, these massive responses to um, videos, and I think that's one of the things we're talking about, not necessarily against police brutality, but against the videos that we see. Uh, we see, I think that's another issue, especially viral videos, because every year these things happen. And, and then also every year there's a video, for example, or even earlier, um, I, I was stuck in the US uh, for a little bit and um, because of the coronavirus and I left out on May 6th. Uh, or I left out on May 7th, on May 6th, there was uh, a young man by, uh, by the name of Drejan Reed in Indianapolis that was killed um, by police and it was a live recording. Um, Breonna Taylor, her uh, case is not often discussed uh, a lot. Um, there's also with the Black Lives Matter hashtag, you have the Say Her Name hashtag. Um, you have also the uh, Black Trans Lives Matter as well because you have a lot of um, um, LGBTQ plus um, individuals who are also victims of, of violence and not necessarily just police violence, but and in, in, in response to the issue I was talking about earlier, but not getting the protection. Um, that they need from violence. Um, so there's a lot of issues that are not necessarily being covered. And, and what I will say to, to everyone is just don't let the protests be the first time you hear about these. Stay, stay abreast of what's happening on the ground. Don't just look at what Trump is doing. Look at what state governors are doing. Look at what local police officers are doing. Uh, like I said, pick your favorite state, Hollywood, Disney World, Florida, California, uh, Montana, Find a local news station and see what's going on on the ground and stay involved. And, 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 and hopefully these issues won't be uh, so muted as we move forward. Great, thank you for that. Um, um, if anyone here, intersectionality of the queer community and the black community, specifically in the US, the commenter was, or the, the participant was thinking specifically of a recent killing of Tony McDade, um, a black trans man. Does anyone have anything to say to that? I, um, I guess I can jump in and, and that is, uh, again, what I, I was saying is that a lot of these things, a lot of these incidents um, get muted because there are some deeper issues that I think people are not comfortable talking about um, as it relates to violence. And I think that um, for me personally, I haven't heard of that particular case, but I've always, made sure 
to pay attention to the um, activists from the queer community, the LGBTQ um, plus community, um, because uh, I think I think the bigger I wouldn't say the bigger issue, but I think a very big issue as it relates to those incidents is that there is a lack of protection and not just the protection from police and law enforcement, but also protection from community and accepting individuals as humans and being worthy of concern and protection. So not just being upset about someone who falls into a view of what a human or what a citizen is supposed to be, but anyone who is a, a, a living person, um, anyone who is a, has the right to protection is, is, um, gets our concern when they lose their lives in these particular situations. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. I think, that's, I think that's actually an excellent point. I mean, um, in our community, it was always, uh, we come from a very hyper-masculine community and uh, nobody ever really wanted to, to talk about what it might be like for a transgender person, uh, at least in our, you know, within the people that we, uh, that we associated with, it was always about, you know, being cool and anything related to uh, the feminine nature was very, very much mocked. And uh, I actually didn't know that much about uh, this particular part of the community until I started paying attention to Laverne Cox, you know, the wonderful actress on uh, Orange is the New Black. And I remember her pointing out that statistically, uh, Black transgender women were uh, violently killed, the most uh, suicidal group out of the Black American community. And I, I was blown away, actually. And so I'm really, really glad that this conversation actually is, uh, is coming up. And again, I was talking to my brother, and we were actually, you know, discussing some of the uh, statistics that Laverne Cox had brought up in informing the public and making them aware about the crisis that's happening in the transgender community. And uh, I told my brother, I said, we were like really just kind of cool. And I said to him, yo, man, I, I like Laverne Cox. And he was like, yeah, me too. Oh my gosh, I've learned so much uh, about, you know, this issue. And so um, I, I think that it's definitely time to have that, you know, this particular discussion. It's a, it's a long, it's 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 overdue. So uh, definitely, definitely. Ooh, can I add something? Um, if you have Netflix, there is a wonderful, excellent series on there called Pose, and it's all about the LGBTQ plus community, and they they deal with trans lives, they deal with um, uh, non gender conformity. Um, one of the things that I think that can help these conversations become a bit easier is when we do see individuals uh, reflected as us in, in media. So if you are only used to seeing people that look like Ross and Rachel and Chandler <laughs> on your TVs and, and, and you're used to seeing when it comes to black people just, you know, 12 years a slave and whatnot and looking at other stories and and other storylines and perceptions and representations, then I think that's gonna actually make these conversations more difficult. But the more we see people who are diverse and who look different and live different lives, we can start to appreciate their humanity a little bit differently. And it's not for, you know, a true for everyone, but I think, you know, definitely check out Pose. It's a, it's a really good show. 
Right, and I saw Patrick and um, Jason had something to say too. Uh, Jason, do you want to go first? Yeah, well, I, I wanted to respond to something that Reggie said um, that, you know, that maybe he also was a little bit late, you know, late to understanding about that community. And I think it's good that he can say that and it shows people exactly what to do because America is going to have an issue with people who are, we have non-racist America and racist America. And as racists slowly become non-racist, we have to welcome them onto the right side of history instead of saying, where the hell have you been? Saying, all right, come on in, let's move forward now. And so I think like Reggie's comment makes it easier because also like transgender was not really something when I was in university, it wasn't even really mentioned. And if it was just some kind of awkward joke, didn't really know anything about it. And so it's something I've had to learn about as a university teacher, realizing I'm now a generation older than the students and I can learn from them. And it helps me see how hard it was maybe for my parents to see some of our world today, trying to understand it and how for their grandparents, it might've been difficult to understand the world they lived in. So as racists become less racist, we should say, come on over. Let's not worry about how you got here. The important thing is that you're on the right side now. We're on the same team. Uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to just chime in that. Yeah, I think that's also an internal problem within uh, uh, the black community that uh, we are not monolithic, uh, but there is this uh, general conserv conservative trend the, that makes it difficult to accept um, uh, the label, you know, of someone being trans and, and, and trying to understand it. Like Jason said, uh, people probably um, in, I guess, in their mid, uh, middle age folks probably are not used to having to, to respect these labels. And if you're talking about the conservative black community in America, you're talking about religious people who don't even want to talk about these issues at all. They, they're, they, they, they don't even want to even recognize that uh, this population even exists. And, uh, and the U.S. is quite conservative in general, especially compared to Europe. So there's, there's a long way to go within the black community in terms of creating more acceptance for the trans community and in general in the U.S., I think. So I think that there are lots of processes. Um, I, I can piggyback with Jason and Esther on that. that there's a lot of work that has to be done. Yeah. One last uh, question that came in from the audience, um, and that was, what, if anything, now? Can, can you write the question in, 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 in the chat? One <laughs> second. Um, uh, I, I can just quickly go and just say, uh, from what I've been hearing, that the, the protests are more diverse than ever before. That means um, there's a, a greater awareness uh, that this is a, a real problem and it's not just the black community that's focused on it. So um, so that, that's, a, that's a bit of an uh, evolution there. So we, we should have a little bit of hope that eventually uh, we probably won't need protests and then yeah, in the next hundred years <laughs> to solve this problem uh, that uh, we'll, we'll get to the point where uh, um, uh, everyone will realize this. It's just, you know, common sense that color shouldn't be uh, a criteria in terms of, you know, whether you're worthy of being treated like a human being. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's a big change. 
Well, this definitely begins at home, and we should be treating the people around us uh, the way not only that we want to be treated, but the way we want them to treat other people. Um, I don't have children, but I'm a university teacher, so it's incumbent upon me to try to um, help them learn the right way to be decent human beings. I don't have all the answers, and I think sometimes admitting to people desperate for information that you don't have all the answers reminds them that maybe they have the answers and we can listen to them too. So I'm also, like Patrick, I'm really glad to see the genetic diversity of the protests. I think it really shows um, finding like pregnant women and retirees also at these uh, protests shows that it's beyond just black and white and us versus them. Um, we're really all on the same page and we just want to make sure that the people on the other side of the page are reading the same page as us. So um, I'm really glad that I was able to listen to what the other people have to say and it's given me things to think about. Um, maybe we could, you know, try to do this again in a month or so and see what's changed and what's developed uh, because things are moving really fast and it's hard to keep up with everything going on. And I'm sure we could do this for another hour and still not answer all the questions people have. But thank you for letting me be here and I definitely learned some stuff tonight. Uh, I don't want to sound too cynical in this, but for me, the genetic diversity of the protests means nothing yet because of people's tendency to try to, or the history of people instrumentalizing other people's suffering in order to soothe their own egos. So for me, I need a little bit more before I'm convinced uh, that anything has changed. Uh, I'm staying positive, so I'm not trying to sound cynical, but I just need a little bit more to be convinced. I've always laughed because I'm like, oh man, you know, the underdog. I'm not quite sure uh, our society is where we where we wish it could be. You remember after the election of Barack Obama, everybody was convinced that we had finally arrived in a post-racial America. Oh, race is no longer an issue. Everything's going to be okay. We're good now. And I hate bringing Alex Jones into this discussion, but, but th there was another school of thought that perhaps President Obama's election uh, meant that he might actually be a sort of quote unquote fall guy for, for a larger issue. The only reason why I bring this up is because I believe that the people's hearts are generally speaking in the right place, but the dynamics of politics are so complex. They, they, they're, they're driven by special interests, okay? Which means that if you come from a group that has enough money, your voice will eventually be heard. I mean, justice actually is for sale. It's, it's, it's hard to say that. The people that stand a better chance of, 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 of uh, having their cases heard and um, defended uh, are those that actually do have money and have the right resources. And so the, there's only a small group of society that will always benefit. You know, health and healthcare is still a major problem. You know, people at the top really, really want to conserve their resources. And so if, if, the, lower, if the lower end of the pyramid, they come for you, the one to two percent of the top, they are going to do everything to block any type of, um, um, 
leveled playing field. And again, you know, as I, I like what Jarrell said about, you know, I, I don't want to sound cynical, but um, it, there's a long road before we really see, you know, equality and justice for everybody. And I'm going to try to be optimistic, um, but uh, I, I, I don't know. I just don't see any real change uh, on the horizon. You know, I, I hope I'm wrong. I really, really hope I'm wrong. So, uh, yeah, that's about it. Thank you. So I think uh, I mean, I, I've, I've talked about the, the importance of, of local and state uh, politics a lot, but um, I think Jason made a good point about looking in your own backyard as well. I think having this honest conversation about politics and what it really means as it relates to us as individuals, um, how are the policies um, here in Freiburg um, promoting a, a, a sort of oppression of, of certain groups? Um, I think that moving forward, there also needs to be a follow-up to the cases. We've already talked about um, the process of the, the charges against the officers. Uh, Patrick brought up a good point about uh, whether or not the officers get a jury trial. I think all of our eyes need to be on that and, and holding the prosecutor um, and the prosecutors of the cases in each city, well, in every city, but I mean, the, the cases we discussed, um, Minnesota, Breonna Taylor's in Louisville, Kentucky, um, Ahmaud Aubrey in, 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 in Georgia, um, and then, you know, any other case that you may hear, really look at, at the prosecutor, look at the people that are in charge of the cases, and if you have family in that particular state and that prosecutor has messed up cases in the past, prosecutors can lose their job. They are in elected position. And uh, that's something that's not talked about a lot as well. Um, you also have law enforcement uh, officials that are elected positions. They can also lose their job if they're not being held accountable. So. Um, or if they're not doing the, the job that they need to do um, or not furthering justice uh, for the people. And I think that is uh, one thing that, that can also be done. But for the most part, I think keep your eyes on what's going on. Don't let protests be the only time you get involved um, or get interested in, in race relations, in, in issues of uh, racism and anti-Blackness. Look at how it's perpetuated around you. Do you see a bunch of ads about poor little African children or you know, international um, uncomfort, uh, uncomfortable situations and, and, and see that as just, you know, as, as something that's this natural and, and not really look deeper at those images that you're seeing. Um, I think those are, those are some of the things that have to, to be addressed before we can, um, or as we move forward, not before, but as we move forward. All right, thank you guys. I'm, I, I don't know how many of my words you can actually hear due to my... Thank you all on the panel for speaking. Again, you didn't have to do this. Really appreciate that. And thank you to all the attendees. Um, and your questions are wonderful. Thank you again to the Kralschitz House for putting this on. And with that, I'll hand it back over to wrap us up. Thank you, Nicole.
Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you to the panelists. I, I don't know how all of you feel, but um, I can just say wow. Um, and thank you for, for all of your honesty also, for your openness. Um, much of this, I think, has not yet been heard by people like me, which means foremost white people, I would say. Um, I think also in Germany, many of us do not have that much contact um, to black people, to minority people. Um, and so it is just very eye-opening um, to hear what you have to say. And it is very valuable to us. And that's just um, what I wanted to, um, yeah, also honestly um, share with you. So thank you so much. Um, for being here, for, for agreeing to be on this panel. Um, we put this together um, quite short notice and you were all on board immediately. Um, so um, yeah, I can just say thank you. Um, I also, I wanted to end this um, discussion or this event um, by raising some awareness um, that of course you can also bring about change by donating as simple as it sounds or as um yeah easy as this sounds or just pure capitalist or i don't know um but it really helps these organizations that are non-for-profit um surrounding um the black lives matter um campaign and movement um i saw that patrick earlier shared um the campaign zero um homepage so look into that um, there is a great number of organizations um, you can donate to um, and also of course um, as you know the cultural tells is also a non-for-profit organization and we really um, would love to keep this conversation going and um, if you would like to donate to us of course this is also greatly appreciated thank you everyone um, and a last thank you also again to our cooperation partners, the Colloquium Politicum and the um, Arnold Bergstrasser Institute at the University of Freiburg. Um, they will actually in the fall um, have a series um, of events on racism, so stay tuned. Um, yeah, and I would like to thank all of you for attending. And I wish you um, an amazing weekend. Keep the conversation going. Keep your, um, your eyes, your ears open um, and listen to the people who surround you. Thank you very much. Have a good night. Thank you to everyone who tuned in. I want to once more acknowledge and appreciate the panelists for participating and sharing all of their thoughts and experiences with us. And I also want to thank the Carl Schutzhaus for putting this together and for giving me permission to share the audio with you guys. The Carl Schutzhaus is the German American Center here in Freiburg, and there's actually German American centers all over Germany. They offer English language courses. Many of them offer a library full of English content. They offer events much like this one and so much more. So check out their website, get informed about what the Carl Schutz House does, and hey, check out if maybe there's a German-American house doing something similar in a city near you. Yes, I did very intentionally put this out on the 4th of July for what I imagine are obvious reasons. We need to be talking about this stuff. Racism is deeply entrenched in America, in America's government, in America's systems, and in American culture. And that's horrendous, and we need to work on it. So 
Maybe it's uncomfortable, maybe it's not what you thought you wanted to do on the 4th of July or the 4th of July weekend, but hey, it's the work we have to do. But now, with the words of our panelists in your minds, go off, enjoy the rest of your weekend, and I hope that you continue thinking about and talking about these topics. The Expat Cast will be back in your feed on Thursday. Until then, stay healthy and stay safe. Fist on. Tschüss.